0: Thank you so much, worship team. Beautiful stuff this morning. Hey, let me just add with uh, Van, if you are a guest with us this morning, I'd love to meet you. I'll be up front at the uh, end of the service. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. I would love the uh, the privilege of meeting you, and I know other folks will be up here uh, as well. We do have a, an honored guest this morning whom you're going to meet at the end of the service, uh, Dr. Yvonne Leonis, and uh, he will be up here uh, sharing a little bit about... Uh, the connection that we have with the uh, ministry in Honduras. So I was able to hear some of that last night after the children's program. I was deeply encouraged by that. Thank you, Dr. Vaughn. So glad you're here. And uh, you'll have a chance to, uh, to interact with him today uh, as well. Let's pray and continue uh, to worship as we open up and look at God's word. Our Father in heaven, we know that we have no plea of our own by which we can say to you, God, accept me. God, I'm worthy of you, but we do have a strong and perfect plea, as we have sung about together this morning, that is the person and work of Jesus Christ, and Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. We ask that you would give us a greater clarity, perhaps, than ever. Give us a, a level of humility and joy in what we're seeing, and Father, I pray that you would move in us for your glory and our good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me to uh, John chapter 9. We've got a a large section together. I kind of wrestle with whether whether or not to break this down into separate parts, but the whole thing flows together. It's one narrative, and so we're going to cover it uh, together like that. Have you ever been watching television and you heard a promo for a new series, uh, an upcoming series that said something like this, from the creator of blank comes this new series, or, or from the producer of such-and-such such comes this new television uh, series, or, or from the mind of so-and-so comes a new offering. Well, we're, what we're looking at, we open up this book, this Bible, we're looking at something that comes from the very mind of God. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there are incredible connections and there's great power and beauty and mystery. And this morning, we're looking at this passage, John chapter 9, uh, where the story of Jesus healing a man born blind is actually going to help explain and really fill out what John says in John chapter 1. So it's really a pretty amazing passage. Last week, we looked at one of the most well-known sayings of Jesus. In fact, maybe the most, uh, one of the most quoted sayings of Jesus, even by people who don't know Jesus or follow Jesus. And as you recall, it went like this. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And we saw, I mean, this is a well-known saying, it's it's pretty widely accepted among religious and non-religious people that as human beings we are wired for truth. We, We need truth. Truth is, as Jesus said, it's liberating. Truth is freeing. And a life that is devoid of truth is one that is sort of a burdensome slog filled with uncertainty and unrest. So we need truth. Now think about this on the, on the personal, on the micro level, this need for truth. Um, we, if you know anyone who's lived a lie or who is living a lie, you know that there's no rest in that. There's no peace in that sort of existence. I've shared with you a couple of times, um, or about a couple of occasions that I experienced in my ministry career where on two separate occasions there were men who lost their jobs, their respective jobs, um, but they were too ashamed to tell their their wives. And so they just got up every morning, 6.30, put a suit and tie on. They left the house. Who knows where they went, but they returned at 6 o'clock p.m., acting like they had a job, but they really didn't. They were too ashamed. What they discovered, though, was the stress that went along with that deception was far worse than... What they might have experienced had they shared that with their spouse. That deception was enslaving. Think of the man or the woman, again, who lives a double life. Uh, The man who has uh, another girlfriend or another family somewhere else. Or the person who pretends to be wealthy, throwing money around and and just paying for everything, but in reality is neck deep in debt. There's no peace there. There's no peace in living that lie. Several years ago, I met with a family, a mom, dad, and son, and uh, they sat down in my office. I had no idea why we were meeting, uh, what, what the agenda was or the purpose was, but they share with me that, that their son, who was with them, had for four years pretended to go to college, but in fact never went. And so the dad actually went in, this was the, two weeks before graduation, the dad wanted to surprise his son by going in and paying for some of the graduation costs, paying for the cap and gown. He went into the registrar's office, and he said, Hey, I'm here. I don't want my son to know about this. I'm going to pay for the cap and gown. And the lady said, Who's your son? And he said his name. He said, We have no student by that name. He said, No, no, you don't don't understand. My son's been going here for four years. He's been a student here for four years. And she said, I'm sorry, sir. We have no one here by that name. There's no student by that name. And that at that moment, they realized, really for the first time, it dawned on them why their son had become really a different person for the last three and a half years. He'd lost his joy. He was under this crushing burden to maintain this, this secret lie, and it almost killed him. We need truth. And of course, not just on a micro level, we need truth on a macro level, on a big picture level as well. As well. We need a big overarching and true story in which we can locate our own stories and from which we can derive meaning and purpose. We need to know as human beings that there's meaning in this world. We need to know that there's a purpose for our suffering. It was the Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, who said there's an interesting, I don't agree with everything he said, but there's an interesting sort of four and a half minute uh, YouTube video where he talks about, was a survivor of four concentration camps. And he said, he who has a why can bear any how. He said that what human beings cannot accept, cannot cope with, is meaninglessness. He says, life without truth is hell. Now, again, most people would agree that as human beings we need truth. We're, We're wired for truth. It's that important. But most would disagree with the fact that we need Jesus to access life-altering truth. Most people around the world, now maybe people in, in, in this area would accept that intellectually, but most people would disagree with the fact that we need Jesus to access truth. If you've been with us in the study of John's Gospel, which we started several months ago, um, you may recall that John begins his book with this statement, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we look back then, this term logos means a lot of things. Um, It meant a lot of things, but it was mainly understood by both Jews and Gentiles. Logos was understood to be the great intellectual reason. The reason for our existence. The reason for our lives. And John starts his gospel by saying, really somewhat shockingly, That the underlying reason for our lives is actually a person. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the truth. He is the enlightenment. He is the the truth that humans have been craving for millennia. Jesus is the light of the world. And yet, we saw in John 1 that people not only can't see the light, but they hate the light. In fact, we saw last week as we looked at our passage in John 8 when people picked up stones to kill Jesus, we saw that the light actually exposes our sinfulness and deep down, we just want the light extinguished. We can't stand the light. The world cannot stand the light. The world cannot see the light. So is there any hope at all? If light has come into the world and people are blind to that light or actually hate the light, then what good news do we have? What what hope do I possibly have to give you this morning if that's the reality? Well, the passage, the answer of this passage this morning is there's reason for incredible hope. There's actually reason, reason for amazing hope because Jesus not only gives light, but he also gives sight, the ability to see the light. He and he alone gives people the capacity to see the light. Let's look at John chapter 9. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 12. The word of the Lord reads this way, and as he passed by, this is Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it is not that, his man, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming, Well, no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, "Is Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Yeah, it's he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So of all the stories in John's gospel, in fact, we actually say of all the stories in all the gospels, this one has the most back-and-forth dialogue. The, the, the greatest number of people involved in the most number of exchanges. Uh, for example, you have questions from the disciples, questions from the neighbors, questions from the Pharisees, questions from the Jews. You have questions to the blind man, questions to the blind man's parents, and then questions to Jesus, and then Jesus will provide this sort of stunning summer, uh, summary answer at the end. So let's, let's consider this dialogue. Jesus has just left the temple, and um, he had to do so kind of by dodging rocks because people were trying to stone him. And so he's walking presumably very briskly from Jerusalem, and he's on a dirt road, and he sees, as he's walking along with this sort of rapid pace, he sees a man on the side of the road who was born blind. Now, the fact that Jesus would actually stop and talk to him is stunning, and it's easy for us to miss, really, the significance of this. In the first century, a person with any sort of physical malady, any sort of so-called or what was perceived to be a a physical defect or whatever, particularly blindness, would have been the lowest on the social rung, and actually to be avoided. In fact, most uh, blind folks were rejected even from their own families, and so they had to resort to, to sort of begging for a living. And one of the reasons they were rejected is because there was this common Palestinian belief, this sort of, you might even say a theological misunderstanding, that the prevailing thought of the day was that physical maladies were a direct result of of a person's sin. In some cases it was believed, perhaps uh, it it was a result of the parent's sin. So people who were incurably diseased or incurably ill were actually despised. They were avoided, they weren't listened to, they were looked down on. But Jesus, he doesn't just walk by, he doesn't just stop, he actually cares for this man. Now here's the first thing I want you to see. This is not the main point of the passage, but I don't want to overlook this. Here's our first point if you're taking notes. Jesus notices and cares for, especially hurting people. He notices and cares for, especially hurting people. Now, this has been a theme in John's Gospel, hasn't it? In fact, we might even say as we read John's Gospel that that Jesus seems most interested in, most inclined to stop and talk to those who were hurting most deeply. Remember the Samaritan woman who was rejected and despised. Not only was she a Samaritan, but she'd also been married multiple times. And Jesus stops and he values her. And he cherishes her, and he engages her. Remember the person who was born, uh, who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. And there was this common assumption that if he could just be lowered into the pool, the water, he would be healed. But he didn't have anyone even around who cared enough about him to lower him into the water. He was so despised, so maligned. And yet Jesus approaches him, and Jesus heals him. Jesus notices and cares for especially hurting people. And that's the same today. Nothing has changed with Jesus. Jesus notices people who have been abandoned and he cares deeply about them. Babies orphaned by the AIDS virus in South Africa with no one to care for them. Babies, I've seen the babies left in a dumpster crying with no one. Jesus cares about babies who are orphaned by the AIDS virus. Jesus cares about Christians who are being persecuted in other parts of the world. Jesus cares about street children in Honduras. Jesus cares about those who have been maligned. And maybe you're a person, and maybe you feel like everybody's given up on you. Maybe this resonates with you because maybe you've been abandoned by a spouse. Maybe you've been rejected by a parent. Maybe you've been maligned by people that you really trusted. Maybe you feel alone and And maybe you feel very distant from God this morning. Well, our feelings don't give us a reliable picture of what's really going on. The reality is God is with you now. And in Christ, He is working in your situation for your good. So I just don't see it. I can't feel it. It doesn't matter if you feel it. This is the character of the Savior that we worship. He is working. He's not moved away from you one inch. In fact... You're not going unnoticed. You may feel like it, but you're really not. Jesus cares deeply about you. In fact, the psalmist says that God is especially close to the brokenhearted. Well, the disciples don't really want Jesus to bother with this man because they believe, like everyone else, that uh, the reason he's in this condition is because of some sin in his life. So they would much rather him just walk past the man But since Jesus has stopped, it gives them time to ask a question. They say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, this is as foolish a question as the one Job's friends offered Job when he was going through his suffering. They say, look, there's something you've done. You, You may not really, you have to search your heart. There's something you've done that's brought this on. This was as foolish a question. This was as foolish a question, or foolish a statement rather, As when televangelist Pat Robertson said in 2010 that the earthquake that hit Haiti was because of the sin of the Haitians therein. Jesus makes it clear this is not how God works. God is not sitting up in heaven with a ledger keeping score, making sure to give us what we deserve. You know what we would get if we got what we deserve, don't you? We would get death. We would be separated from God, we would be under his condemnation forever. We have sinned against God in word, deed, thought, motive, affection, all of these ways and more. We deserve death, but instead, we get life. We deserve condemnation, but instead, we get love. We should have been written off. We actually deserve the hammer of God, but instead, God sends His Son to pay for our sins, to pay for our rebellion. So that by believing on him, we could actually be pardoned from our treason. Speaking of getting what we deserve, on the cross, Jesus received what we deserved. So that we could be spared for God's wrath once and for all. So when we suffer now, see on the cross, God forever uh, severed that relationship between doing and deserving. Now we can rest assured that if we're in Christ... Even though it doesn't look like it, God is up to something good for us. He's not out to get us. He's not keeping score. Our struggles don't mean that God is punishing us. It means that we're living in a sin-cursed world where bad things happen to everyone. Jesus says to his disciples, Neither this man nor his parents' sin caused this. His blindness was part of God's sovereign design, this is sort of my paraphrase, to showcase God's works of power. In other words... Through this man's blindness, God would show not only his power to restore the man's physical sight, he would also show his power to remove the man's spiritual blindness. And by the way, Jesus says, in light of this power of God to make alive those who are dead, to restore sight to those who are blind, in light of that, Jesus says we ought to actually love other people, pursue other people with urgency. He says, night is coming when no man can work. In other words, Jesus is saying... There will be a time when we can't do what we'd like to do. There will be a time when we can't share with other people the love of Christ. So evangelism ought to be a priority for us. Well, this, as I mentioned, has sparked all kinds of debate and discussion and and back and forth. So let me summarize it for you. The neighbors are confused. They don't know what to think. Some say, well, it seems like this is the same guy we used to see begging. Others say, no, it's not him. It's a guy that looks like him. The Pharisees are, are divided Mostly they're just angry because Jesus has sort of offended their religious sensibilities by by healing on the Sabbath. This, by the way, is what legalism does to us. It causes us to be more concerned about keeping the rules than actually loving our neighbor or caring about those who are hurting. New Testament scholar, David Garland, writes, It is no wonder that Jesus' attitude towards sinners fasting the Sabbath was threatening to the pietists. It seems to leave little room for their outward religious performance, their specialty. So they're upset. They're like, well, wait a second. You've offended us. You've you've healed on the Sabbath. You've done what we believe you shouldn't be be doing. And so the neighbors are confused. The Pharisees are angry and divided. The man is still kind of processing all this. So the Pharisees, they say, well, the neighbors are confused. Let's go to the man's parents for an answer. Look at verses 19b through 21. They asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. Having two boys and two girls, I've been amazed at, the difference um, between the way boys tend to communicate and the way girls tend to communicate. And I know this is, this is a bit stereotypical. It doesn't work like this in every family, but in my family, I'm amazed at how much more my girls tend to talk. How Way more I tend to talk way more. In fact, I can ask my girls a simple sort of you know, low-impact, close-ended question that could easily warrant a yes or no. And, like, for example, I can ask one of my girls what they had for lunch. And that's pretty easy, right? You can Rattle off a couple of items. But instead, I get this. Okay, so there was this one girl, and, um, and she forgot her lunch. She forgot her milk, and I wanted to give her my milk, but I, I tried to give her my milk, and she didn't like that because I guess her mom said that her dad grew up in a, a rough environment where he never had lunch for himself, so he didn't really want anybody else to give his daughter lunch. And so when I did that, she got really upset. And then we walked into this other class. This goes on forever, right? <laughs> And, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I, love, I love that. I love listening. Um, but it's very different than my boys. I can ask my boys a very, a very open-ended, high-impact question. I can say something like this. They, they can be gone for two weeks. I say, hey, tell me about camp. And that, that's, that gives, there's wide open. Tell me about camp. It was good. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, what about it was good? Well, we did stuff. Oh, what kind of stuff did you do? Uh, Fun stuff. Well, okay. well, what was fun about it? I mean, it was good. And this is what I get. And so eventually, I'm just like, you know what? Forget it. I'll go ask your sister what she's wearing to school tomorrow. And I know that's going to open it up. But, But there's a difference between the way boys and girls tend to communicate. But even with the most quiet and reserved children, they want to tell their parents if something major has happened. I mean, something really, really significant has taken place. Well, what could be more major than what the man in our story has experienced? The man has been blind since birth. He's never seen colors. He's never seen shading and shadows. He's never seen depth. He's never se- so you can imagine when Jesus heals him, of course he's going to go tell his parents all this stuff. You can't. I, I never knew how beautiful this was. I never knew how amazing this was. Do you think he's just going to keep them, this to himself? Of course not. He's going to tell his parents everything. His parents likely knew everything when the Pharisees came to them. But they were strangely coy about it. Rather than say anything, they said, Well, look, we don't really know for sure. He's right there. Go ask him. Their response is a little strange to me. But then John tells us why in verses 22 through 23. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they'd, they'd heard these things. They knew what uh, presumably what Jesus had done for this man. Um, They knew a little bit about Jesus. They were pretty new to Jesus, but they were open to him. And being open to truth in a world that is turned away from truth will always cost us something. It will always cost us something. And at this point, the man's parents, as well as their sons, will experience this. Look at verses 24 and following. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, is that I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear this again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And listen to this. And they reviled him, saying... You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. There's a theme we see over and over again. We don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Now, it's very interesting that John tells us that when this man asked the religious leaders, perhaps sarcastically, if they want to follow Jesus too, the text tells us that they reviled him. The mere thought of following this carpenter, it's just the mere notion of them actually needing Jesus for anything, was so repulsive to them. And so they say proudly, we're disciples of Moses. We know where Moses came from. We don't know where this man came from. Now what are they clinging to? They're clinging to, first of all, their own knowledge. But even more than that, they're clinging to their own performance. Moses is synonymous with the law, with the commands. And they say, we're we're disciples of Moses. What they're saying is, we're keeping the true law of God. We're actually obeying God in the way he's described. We're, We're right with God because we're keeping the commandments. And as for you, you obviously haven't kept the commandments because, look, you're blind and you can't see. And here we are healthy and right and we can see, so obviously, we've been doing what's right. They say to the man, you can just sense the contempt in their voices. You were born in utter sin. How dare you? How dare you presume to teach us? They won't listen and they won't learn. Now, here's our second point this morning spiritual blindness grows increasingly dark when our self-righteousness remains unchecked. In other words, the more that we believe that salvation is riding on us, the more that we believe that we can do enough to appease the wrath of a holy God, the more that we believe we're basically good people at the core, the more spiritually debilitating our darkness becomes. But the more we open ourselves up to Jesus with humility and integrity, the more that we accept our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, the more captivating the light actually becomes. I'm not saying by that, that when we trust in Jesus, it's it's because we've come to some realization on our own. What I am saying is that self-righteousness is so destructive that not only does it ruin our relationships, and I've seen this, the worst counseling situations I've ever dealt with in 19 years, it's for people sitting in my office where neither one can admit to being wrong. They both say, no, this is, this is it's her fault. Or she says, no, it's his fault. We can't make any progress if both persons clinging to their own rightness. But not only does self-righteousness cause that, that problem at the horizontal level, but even more so at the vertical level, our relationship with God. Self-righteousness actually fuels our spiritual blindness. But... And here's the beautiful news. God can and does break through that spiritual blindness. Notice that Jesus doesn't restore the man's sight. This man could never actually see to begin with. He was born blind. So so Jesus actually starts from scratch. In the same way that John tells us that Jesus was there at creation, making something out of nothing, this is what he does here. He takes a man who cannot see, who's totally blind, and he actually creates or gives this man sight. This is an undeniable miracle. But this miracle is, of course, a picture of a much greater feat that Jesus would accomplish, much greater than actually giving a man who's blind his sight. It's a picture of his spiritual sight-giving. And it's so significant that this man is born blind, it's a picture of how each one of us is born, spiritually blind. In fact, one old-time theologian says this, the man blind from birth is every man. For it is part of that sin of the world which the Lamb of God beareth away that by nature we are blind until our eyes are opened by Christ, the light of the world. We are born into darkness, hating the light, and only by a supernatural work of God are we enabled to see. And I have to tell you, this is particularly helpful for those of us in Pastoral ministry, I believe. Because there are plenty of times when I have taught and preached and counseled and explained and in my own proud flesh, I thought, why doesn't this person get it? Why don't they see? I have clearly articulated, why don't they understand this? Why can't they grasp this? And then God reminds me gently by the Spirit that this is how I started out. This is how we all start out. We start out spiritually blind. We're only able to see any of us. The only reason I'm able to see anything is because of a gracious and supernatural act of God. And so rather than being feeling superior or feeling super insightful, what I really need to feel instead, I need to be thankful for God's work in my own life, patient with those who don't yet get it, as I would explain it, And prayerful that God will do the same in others. And and believing that he will. Now look at this next section, verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him. I just love that. Jesus, he circles back to the man as soon as he hears this. He says, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. When Jesus found the man, he asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? As Jesus often did, he asked questions to really get at the heart of a person. And the man says, well, who is he? I want to believe in him. Who is he? Who are you talking about? And See, there's an openness to faith. There's a humility. There's a a suppleness of heart. Evidence of the Spirit's working. And Jesus says, he's the one you're looking at. he's, He's the one who's talking to you even now. And the man says, I believe, and then we're told that he worshiped Jesus. Now, notice the progression here. He goes from being open, to being inquisitive, to listening, to believing, to then worshiping. And I believe that there's something that John wants us to learn from that. The light of life gradually enlightens him. And he, is, and he is given more light as he leans in. And here's our third point this morning. As we respond to Jesus by his Spirit's enabling, he gives us increasingly clear sight. I think sometimes when we think about sanctification, you know, God actually molding us and shaping us and growing us by his Spirit, we tend to think strictly in terms of growth in behavior, behavioral change. You know, I used to do this. I used to be an angry person. I used to be a greedy person, a lustful person, whatever, an impatient person. But now I'm less of those things. And praise God, that is part of his sanctification. By the power of the Spirit, he does conform us into the image of his Son. And he does change us behaviorally. But it's so much deeper and better than that. Change in behavior happens, but there's, but there's, also, there's also growth in understanding. There's also a growth, a greater recognition of who God is, who we are before God, the, the work that Jesus is doing in the world. I said that this all ties together so beautifully. Remember when Jesus has this exchange with Nicodemus that our kids uh, last night, their performance just demonstrated so beautifully. But Jesus, Jesus, John says, or Jesus says to Nicodemus that says, "Unless you're born again, you cannot what? You cannot see the kingdom of God." And what God does in making someone alive is he, he enables us to see God's work in the world and specifically God's work on the cross through His Son. What God does in a person who belongs to Him is He not only molds and shapes into the image of His Son, but He deepens our understanding of His grace. He gives us a greater recognition of His grace. As a man said to me over lunch in the last couple of weeks, I'm, I've become more aware of God's grace in the last year. This is the work of God. I had lunch with a group of pastors this week, and we were talking about theology and, and preaching, and, and more specifically, Christ-centered preaching. And um, We're talking about all of these things, and, and one of the guys who was sitting right across from me said, when did you like, when did you become persuaded of a real Christ-centered, sort of grace-saturated approach to preaching? And I said, well, it was probably... If I recall correctly, it was probably around 2007, 2008. But here's the deal. That was already six or seven years into my ministry, even into my preaching ministry. So what I said to this guy is, and really everybody around the table is, I had to actually go back and I had to figure out some way to, to delete those first six years of sermons. I had to make sure no one ever, ever heard them. They were that bad. Because I realized that, that even, I mean, I was a believer at the time. I was striving to know God. I was wanting to do his will and so on. But I realized that they were all law all the time. They were commands. They were what you should do better and what you should do differently and how to live a kingdom ethic and all these sort of things that I said. But it was the wrong emphasis. I wasn't saying anything necessarily heretical, but I was emphasizing the wrong thing. They weren't gospel-centered. And I've heard other guys, many other people say the same thing. Matt Chandler, who's well-known in uh, Texas, said that he went to his tech team after seven years in ministry and said, I want you to, to, to abs- just purge, scrub, get rid of all these sermons. I don't want anyone to hear these. Uh, Brian Chappell, who's a, a remarkable preacher and theologian, he said that he discovered a box of his old sermons one time in the garage, and he started reading them. He said, oh, my goodness. Where's the nearest fireplace? He, said, he, he realized, I, I, this is, I don't want anybody to see this. H.B. Charles, Ray Orland, many others have said the same thing. Again, and it wasn't as, I wasn't mailing it in. I was spending 18 to 20 hours a week in sermon prep. And yet, a lot of what I, do, what I was doing was an adventure and missing the point. But what God has done very graciously, and I praise God for this over time, He's helped me to see through the Word, by His Spirit, through the community of believers, see with clearer vision the beauty and the power and the magnificence of His grace. See, as we re- continue to respond to Jesus, He gives us more insight clear vision into who he is and who we are. And as God grows our faith, he again, he helps us to see on a deeper level both our need for him and just how extravagant his mercy is. This is why the apostle Peter would pray this for his flock in 1 Peter 3. He prays that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, I'm constantly praying for you that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This blind man's very sort of truncated experience is meant to show us something about God's continual pouring out of His grace. He keeps enlightening us he doesn't just sort of pour out his light on us and say okay now fend for yourself he keeps giving us clear vision he keeps showing us more of himself so we become more and more enamored with his love and his grace john newton the great hymn writer of songs like amazing grace who himself had a very checkered past being a one-time slave trader captured this so well newton said i'm not what i ought to be I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Here's some really good news for you this morning. God is not finished with you yet. God has so much that he wants to show you about himself. God has so much that he wants to reveal to you through his word and by your spirit and in your small group, through the fellowship of the saints. God has so much that he wants to show you about himself. He hasn't just made you alive. He hasn't just sort of uh, shined a light on you and said, all right, now you can stumble along on your own. His desire is to keep enlightening, to keep revealing himself to us. Now look at this final section, verses 39 through 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, That those who do not see may see. And listen to this, and those who may see would become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Now, on the surface, this seems to be a little problematic, doesn't it? Because it seems like what Jesus is saying is, that he wants to give sight to those who are blind, and to those who can already see, he's going to take away their sight. Now, that's, that's difficult for those of us who believe that, that God is the one, the author and perfecter and keeper of salvation. We say, what could Jesus be talking about? Well, when Jesus talks about those who could not see, he's talking about those who know they're blind, those who know they're blind. And when he talks about those who, say, who, who believe they can see, He's talking about those who think they can see, those who believe that they're actually doing fine on their own. It's very much reminiscent of what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 9, where he says, he says those who, who think they're well, I'm paraphrasing here, those who think they're well, they don't need a doctor. But those who know they're sick, they're the ones who need, They know they need a doctor. Helps us to make sense of the Pharisees' question and Jesus' answer here. They say to him, you think we're blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, that is to say, if you only admitted your sinfulness, if you only admitted that you need enlightenment, if you only admitted that you need correction, you wouldn't be guilty because that realization would lead you to recognize your need for me. But since you say, we see, believing you have all together, believing you don't need correction, believing you don't need a Redeemer. You don't see your need for me. And this is why you remain stuck in your sin. The more we cling to being right, the more we we pretend to have it all together, trusting in our own goodness, the more we will live lives enslaved to that falsehood. The more we recognize our need for light, The truth of who Jesus is. His redemptive work. God's redemptive work in the world through Christ. The more we recognize that need. The more what Jesus has done will become more precious to us. More beautiful to us. More life giving to us. And will actually lead to freedom. Let me close with a story I read recently. I read this story about a well-known pastor. Who spoke at a national conference. And you know 9,000 people. Whatever it was. And. He's speaking to other pastors and other ministers. And this guy had a reputation of being very controversial, maybe maybe saying some things that were over the top just for effect. But he finished up his 50-minute message, and not surprisingly, because of his controversial nature, there's a long line of people all the way down the center aisle, people who want to talk to him. Well, the first guy in line was this young man who admitted he's brand new in ministry, been in ministry about 18 months, fresh-faced, hasn't experienced much. But this young pastor said to this Old, experienced, well-known pastor, he said, I'm deeply grieved by what you just said. So the old pastor asked him, oh, what? to elaborate, what, what did I say that, that bothered you so much? The young man said to the old pastor, I, I just think you're arrogant and prideful. Now, there's a moment or two of silence before the old preacher responded. He, he surprised the young man by saying, you know what? You're exactly right. I am prideful. But by God's grace, I'm a lot less prideful than I used to be. Well, that wasn't sufficient for the young man. So he, he said, he was kind of surprised by that. He said, you know what, And I think you're selfish too. I think you're a selfish person. To which the old preacher said, you know what, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. My mother told me that when I was young. My wife tells me that now, but I'm on my knees before the Lord about it. Stunned at this point, the young man said, you know what, I I don't even think you're fit to be a Christian. And the old preacher said again, you're exactly right. This is why Christ died for me. Talk about a truth that will set us free. There's freedom in that recognition. We are selfish, unreliable, arrogant people, unworthy of God's salvation. But that's why Christ died. There's tremendous joy in embracing the fact that Even as a Christian, even as a Christian, I'm worse than I think I am. But God's grace toward me is far bigger than I could ever imagine. And Christ's death, Christ's life and death for me is more sufficient than I can ever dream. His love for me is much more extravagant than I could ever fully grasp. And only when God drives us to the end of ourselves, to the end of our own perceived righteousness... Do we begin to see the power and joy in the gospel. And only when God does that. Do we truly see the light. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We ask this morning. You would give us the grace. To realize our own brokenness. But to rest in the finished work of our Savior. Father we know our sins are many. We are selfish. And we love other things more than we love you. We pursue other things with more vigor than we pursue pursue you. We are fickle people. Our sins are great. But Lord, we praise you this morning that your mercy is more. Lord, will you by your spirit give us the ability to believe it and to rest in it this morning. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.